Hi there and welcome, I'm Rabbi Nachomet with the Las Vegas Kolel. It's July 23rd, 1983, Air Canada Flight 143 is flying from Montreal to Edmonton. Captain Bob Pearson is piloting the plane. Everything is going smooth, the 767 is flying uneventful. At 41,000 feet, somewhere between Montreal and Edmonton, Captain McPherson looks at all of his gadgets and dials and gizmos in the cockpit, and all of a sudden a warning light goes on. No fuel, engine one. Captain McPherson decides we need to abort this flight and make an emergency landing. You can't fly, I mean, you can fly a plane with only one engine, engine two, but that's an emergency situation. Captain McPherson calls into the tower and says, we need to make an emergency landing. One of our engines has stopped working. Few minutes later, another warning light goes on. No fuel, engine two. Captain McPherson says, that can't be. A few moments later, a loud thud and everything goes dark in the cockpit. Both engines have completely failed, totally not working. The engines are actually what feed electricity to the cockpit, so everything in the cockpit goes dark. At 41,000 feet, Captain McPherson finds himself in a plane, essentially in a free fall. Captain McPherson luckily had been a trained glider pilot. He knew how to, how to glide planes. The only difference is small gliders weigh, you know, a couple pounds. Here he's gliding a 767. Pilots aren't trained to glide a 767 without any power, without any engines, without any electricity. He decides his only option is to land at the closest possible spot and they had looked at their charts and all of the records and they had called into the tower and they found out that there was an old abandoned Air Force base, Gimli Air Force Base, not too far away. Captain McPherson, using his gliding skills, is able to glide the plane safely to Gimli Air Force Base. As they land on that runway, that abandoned runway, what they thought was an abandoned runway, they see a whole bunch of people in front of them. Apparently. Gimli Air Force Base had been converted to a racetrack, an amateur racetrack. And although the race had ended a few minutes earlier, there were still a couple of kids on their bikes at the end of the runway. Luckily, as they landed the plane, the front landing gear gave way. The nose hit the concrete, creating tremendous amount of friction. And the plane stopped just a few yards before running over those kids on the bikes. Miraculously, no one was seriously hurt. It was tremendous. We all recall the miracle on the Hudson. Well, this was the gliding Gimli you know, miracle back in 1983. It was a remarkable feat and McPherson was really a real hero. After everyone got off the plane, they got everyone back home safely. They tried to figure out what went wrong. How, to, how did both engines lose energy? That should never happen. What went wrong on the Gimli glider? We read, say for Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, we read how God tells the Jewish people they should appoint for themselves a king. They should have a king when they get into the land of Israel who should be the executive branch of the government. A king should rule the people. Great, the Torah says that king, he needs to make sure he observes the Torah, he listens to the mitzvahs, he doesn't become too haughty, and he follows all of God's commandments. Interestingly, the Torah then says... That king, he's got to make sure he doesn't deviate from the mitzvah to the right nor to the left. 
Why? So that his reign, his monarchy will last, not just for him, but for his descendants afterwards, Bekar of Israel, amongst the Jewish people. Rashi tells us, remarkably, that the king shouldn't deviate from the mitzvah. Rashi says, even if it's just a light command of a prophet. And Rashi goes on to explain, he gives us a classic example. In the book of Samuel, you read how Shmuel Hanavi, Samuel the prophet, goes ahead and he identifies Shaul. He identifies Saul as the new king, the first king of the Jewish people. And he anoints Shaul as the king of the Jewish people. And Shmuel, who's a prophet, he tells Shaul, I want you to wait here for seven days. And in seven days, I'm going to return. And when I return, we're going to go ahead together and we're going to bring sacrifices together. And once we do that, then you'll go ahead and you'll drive out the plishtim, the enemies from the land. King Shaul says, great. He waits 6.9 days. It's almost the end of the, of the sixth day. It's the seventh day is almost there. It's late in the day. His army has been preparing to attack the Plishtim and drive them from the land, to drive the enemies from the land of Israel. And they're waiting and waiting, and Shmuel has not yet returned. And the army is getting antsy, and many of them just start leaving. They're saying, hey, you know, when are we going to go fight? Shmuel hasn't returned, and many of them melt away. Shaul, it's almost the end of the sixth day, he really feels the itch, he wants to start the fight, they're itching to go, and he decides, you know what, I've waited long enough, it's almost seven days, and he goes ahead and he brings those sacrifices, 6.9 days after Shmuel had told him to wait seven days. He almost waited the exact amount of time. Sure enough, what happens shortly after Shaul brings those sacrifices, at exact, you know, when the seventh day turns, who comes? Shmuel. And Shmuel says, well, what happened? What's going on over here? And Shaul says, well, I waited almost to the seventh day, but you weren't here. So he decided, what's the big deal? It's 6.9 days. And he went and, and I, he says, I decided I'm going to bring the sacrifices now. And Shmuel tells Shaul, because you didn't listen to the command of me, the prophet, and I told you in the name of God that you should wait seven days. And although you waited 6.9 days, wasn't quite good enough. And because you didn't listen to that commandment, Shmuel tells Shaul that your reign, your monarchy, will be torn away from you. And indeed, we know King Shaul, his malchus, his monarchy doesn't last. He would only reign as king for himself, but it wouldn't go generationally. His children would not become the kings. Rather, it went to King David. Why? Rashi tells us it was all because of this problem. Shaul didn't go ahead and take significance to the mitzvah kala shal divrei navi, to the small command of the words of a prophet. Shaul didn't go ahead and listen, and because of that, he's punished. And it always struck me, it seems so disproportionate. Because Shaul, he didn't wait seven days, he only waited 6.9 days, because of that, he loses his entire monarchy. It seems like such a disproportionate response to what Rashi himself tells us. It was a small, minor transgression. I believe the answer is that we all know details matter. Small details matter. And I'm sure Shaul understood that. And he heard a lecture and the inspiring talk, how important details are. But if you think about it, all of us, at some points in our lives, we become a little sloppy with small details. Where do we become sloppy with small details? We usually are careless and don't 
pay particular attention to details in situations where we feel the stakes aren't really that high. The situation isn't that critical. Things that aren't that important, we tend not to give them the appropriate weight and we become a little sloppy on those details. And I believe that was the failure of King Shaul is, yeah, it was a small detail and I'm sure King Shaul appreciated the lessons of the importance of small details. The problem with that King Shaul had is he didn't appreciate just how high the stakes were. He viewed it as a mitzvah kala shal divrei navi. This was a small, nice command of a prophet. It wasn't one of the 613 mitzvahs. It wasn't a Torah commandment. That, he appreciated the weight and the stakes, just how important they are. But situationally, he felt that Shmuel's commandment, well, it wasn't such a big deal. And that was his failure because he didn't go ahead and appreciate the magnitude of just how important the context and the situation was, he became sloppy in the details. Had he gone ahead and appreciated just how important and severe the situation was, I'm sure he would have been more attentive to details. This is so true with all of us. We tend to be very particular about those minor, small, seemingly inconsequential details when we appreciate the magnitude of the situation. I'll give you an example. Imagine you were a teacher and you have a student and you ask the student the following question on their test. You've got 6,000, excuse me, 7,682 liters of gasoline. Convert that into kilograms. So you go ahead and you remember, well, the coefficient of calculating liters, which is a measure of volume, into kilograms, a measure of weight, well, the coefficient is 1.77. And you do the math and you come up with the answer, 13,597. You'd be wrong because that coefficient was the correct coefficient for pounds, the imperial system, the correct coefficient for kilograms, the metric system, the correct coefficient is 0.803, and therefore the correct answer is 6,169 kilograms. Student made a mistake. You as a teacher, what would you do to that student? You'd go ahead and you maybe take off however many points, maybe you would say you get no credit, and you'd go ahead and say, you know what, study better next time. The stakes aren't that high. It's not such a critical situation. The student made a sloppy mistake. He used the wrong coefficient. He used the calculation for, for pounds when he should have been using the coefficient for kilograms. Careless mistake. He wasn't so attentive to details. But what are the results? He didn't do quite as good on a test. He got one question wrong. It's not the end of the world. But imagine you were doing that calculation to try to figure out how much gasoline is in an airplane. And you inadvertently used the coefficient for pounds when you should have been using the coefficient for kilograms. And because of that, you miscalculate how much fuel is in an airplane. Guess what happens? It's a small detail, it's a small inconsequential mistake, right? No, what ends up happening in that situation is a plane loses fuel at 41,000 feet and falls out of the sky. It's a small detail, what's the difference between the two situations? The answer is the context. When we're just taking an exam in the fifth grade, it's not a big deal if you make a sloppy mistake. But if we go ahead and we make a sloppy mistake when we're dealing with aviation and 767s, planes fall out of the sky. When it comes to our relationship with God and the mitzvahs, we have to realize there's no such thing as a mitzvah kala. There's no such thing as a small detail because the stakes are just so important. Our relationship and our connection to the mitzvah and the, to the mitzvahs and to the Torah and to God, we have to view them with the appropriate weight and significance that they deserve. Details matter, we all know that. We have to re-emphasize and remind ourselves 
Context also matters. Situations carry the weight that they really deserve. And let's go ahead and make sure that when it comes to our connection to God and the mitzvahs, we are indeed giving them the appropriate significance that they deserve.